We're just waiting for the whistle of Stuart Cummings. He checks with his officials either side, and the European Super League is underway. You notice- Hello, and welcome to episode three of the History of Rugby League podcast. Thank you for joining me on another trip through the Rugby League time tunnel. I hope you have enjoyed the previous two episodes, and if you are new to the podcast, then please head on over to your chosen podcast platform and have a listen to our first two episodes about the birth of Rugby League and the history of the Challenge Cup final. This episode is all about how Rugby League in Britain became a summer game and the birth of Super League. Before we start, if there are only listeners in the Hull area, then you may be interested in the Rugby in Mind project. It's organised by Father Phil Lamb, a schoolcoach-based vicar who has done a lot to help promote mental and physical well-being in and around Hull. Rugby in Mind is open to anyone 16+, plus and is a weekly minimal contact rugby league session designed to help the mind, body and soul through the social rugby league sessions. The weekly sessions start on Wednesday, November the 28th, which is this Wednesday coming, and they run from 8pm until 9pm at the Steve Prescott 4G pitch on Temple Street in Hull. The first two months of the sessions are free of charge, but if you'd like to make a donation to either Life for a Kid or Hashtag Mind Health, which are two very worthy causes, then you can do. For more information, get in touch with either Father Lamb on 0780 323 9611 or Dean Hoggard on 07 By the early 1990s, Rugby League in Britain wasn't in the greatest shape. On the field, Wigan had blazed new trails both domestically and internationally, with their crowning moments of global dominance coming when they defeated the all-conquering Brisbane Broncos by 20 points to 14 in their own backyard to win the 1994 World Club Challenge. Off the field, many clubs were feeling the financial pinch, with many coming close to folding. Down under, the Super League war was raging, as the battle for for broadcasting supremacy caused the Southern Hemisphere game to split into two. Rupert Murdoch, supremo of News Corporation, was spearheading the Rebel Super League project in Australia, and saw the British game as a way of striking a blow to the ARL and claiming a foothold in the bitter civil war. For many years, debate had raged as to whether British Rugby League should switch to a summer sport, as clubs counted the costs of dwindling attendances and winter postponements. The decision to make the change to summer was allegedly made regardless of any overseas investment. In a 1996 interview with Dave Hadfield of The Independent, Maurice Lindsay, chief executive of Super League Europe, claimed that, quote, We would have moved to summer rugby even if we hadn't had a penny. On Saturday, April the 8th, 1995, four months into Rugby League's centenary year, the biggest announcement in the game's 100-year history was made, as Super League was unveiled to the world, with kickoffs scheduled for the spring of 1996. The promises were lavish. Clubs were going to sprout in exotic European locations such as Paris, Toulouse, Dublin and Cardiff, along with promises of untold riches. Murdoch and News International announced they would pump £87 million into the game over an initial five-year period, while several controversial mergers were first mooted. Fierce cross-city rivals Hull and Hull Kingston Rovers were to become Humberside. Workington, Whitehaven, Barrow and Carlisle would merge to form Cumbria. Salford and Oldham would turn into Manchester. 
Witness and Warrington would amalgamate into Cheshire, whilst Doncaster and Sheffield would form another county team by becoming South Yorkshire, with West Yorkshire clubs Featherstone, Castleford and Wakefield scheduled to become Calder. The mergers were opposed by supporters of the established clubs and eventually the plans had cold water poured on them. In place of the proposed mergers, it was decided that the original 14-team plan would be scrapped, with Super League becoming a 12-team competition, consisting of the top 10 clubs from the 1994-95 Championship season, which meant established clubs such as Featherstone, Hull FC, Wakefield Trinity and Widnes were excluded, as were recently crowned 2nd Division champions Keithley. The Yorkshire club had preempted the razzmatazz of the summer era, and had a large marketing overall, becoming the Keithley Cougars in the process. The Keithley Club attempted a High Court injunction in an effort to prevent the new competition from launching, eventually climbing down following an amendment to the original plan which would now allow promotion and relegation to and from the Super League, as well as enhanced financial incentives for First Division clubs. In a commercial exercise, London Broncos would find themselves fast-tracked into the new competition from the Second Division, whilst Paris Saint-Germain a joint venture between the French soccer club of the same name and Super League would become the 12th and final participants in order to provide a true European dimension on the competition, especially after the proposed clubs in Ireland and Wales had failed to materialise. January 1996 saw the end of 100 years of history as the curtain came down on Rugby League being a winter sport with the culmination of the Centenary Championship. A truncated league season which saw each team play each other only once, which was created in order to facilitate the change from winter to summer. Following a large marketing campaign and extended coverage on Sky Sports, the BBC and national newspapers, Zero Hour for Super League eventually came round on Friday 29th of March 1996, as the new Paris Saint-Germain team played host to Sheffield Eagles at the Charletti Stadium. Off the field, some changes were implemented by Super League and the Rugby League Council in order to protect the clubs and ensure the new competition's sustainability. Most notably, clubs were now subjected to a salary cap, designed to prevent clubs from, spend from spending more than they earn, and only allowing 40% of their operational budget to be spent on players. Super League clubs also found their accounts under increased scrutiny, with stringent financial rules coming into force, which dictated that club accounts were submitted to Super League senior management on a monthly basis for monitoring. On the pitch, several rules were brought into place in order to make the game more aesthetically pleasing to a predicted new audience. Following the ball going out of play, scrums were now to restart 20 metres from the touchline in order to help the team with head and feed create attacking opportunities. And in attempts to clean up the ruck after tackles, players were now banned from playing the ball to themselves, regardless of if markers were present or not. One lesser remembered rule would see attacking, te would see attacking teams rewarded with an extra tackle if they failed at a kick and then were tackled without successfully passing the ball. While another rule change would see the scoring team restart the game by kicking off to the opposing side. Super League referee supremo Greg McCallum cited the significance of marketing the game to the Americas and Asia as the reason for this particular rule change, although neither of the rules lasted a particularly long time. As pyrotechnics filled the Parisian air, the players came to the field in pairs, side by side with their counterparts from the other team to the strains of the Queen classic We Will Rock You, whilst being announced to the crowd in position order by Sky commentator Mike Stevenson. This was rugby league, but not as we knew it. 
Further history was created in the 10th minute of the game when match referee Stuart Cummings handed a decision to the video referee for the first time. Paris centre Freddie Bonquet was adjudged to have gone into touch under a two-man tackle from Sheffield's Keith Senior and Wysalis over to Boer before grounding the ball and saw his score ruled out. Luckily for Bonquet, playing against his former side, the video ref wasn't necessary a minute later when he intercepted Johnny Lordis' attempt at preventing a knock-on and evaded Paul Carr to cross for Super League's first ever try. After the two sides went in at half-time level at 10-all, Sheffield soon surged into a 20 points to 14 lead thanks to tries from Matt Crowther and Paul Carr, but soon found themselves pegged back with PSG eventually notching three tries in a devastating 13-minute spell, with winger Arnaud Cervello scoring a personal base of tries, including the game's iconic moment. Picking up a loose ball in his own 10-metre area following an Eagles attack, Cervello ran the length of the field to help his side secure the points. Not even a try after the final hooter from Keith Senior was enough to dampen the spirits of, as the home side recorded a 30 points to 24 win, to send the majority of the amassed crowd of 17,873 people happy. PSG president Jacques Faureau said of the evening and the attendance, quote, 98% of them were new to the game, but they understood it right away. They saw tries, lots of commitment, lots of movement, they saw beauty and attended a great party. In the opening weekend's other results, London Broncos, elevated from the second division, pulled off a 24 points to 22 away win at Halifax. Bradford got their campaign off to a winning start, beating Castleford 30 points to 18 at Odsall. Warrington beat Leeds 22-18. Centenary champions Wigan scored a resounding 56-16 win away at Oldham, while St Helens recorded a crushing 62-0 win away at Workington. The inaugural Super League title will go down to the wire with arch-rivals Wigan and St Helens battling it out for, for the honours. Both sides only recorded two defeats all season, with Saints claiming the bragging rights in the traditional Good Friday clash and Wigan returning the favour at Central Park in June. Bradford Bulls would be the only side to beat both championship frontrunners, hammering St Helens 50 points to 22 to avenge their earlier Challenge Cup final defeat before beating Wigan 2012 with both wins coming at a rejuvenated Oztal. Eventually Wigan would pay the price for not closing out a result as their 18-all draw at home to London Broncos would prove decisive in the title race as the draw, coupled with their defeat away at Bradford, left them needing an almighty slip-up by the Saints. The Nosley Road outfit went from strength to strength however, defeating the Broncos thanks to a late try from Apollo Perellini that needed arguably the most crucial video referee decision of the season, before recording their 8th haul of more than 50 points by hammering Sheffield. The scene was then set on the August Bank Holiday Monday for a St Helens title party. On a baking hot day in front of a capacity crowd at Nosley Road, standoff Tommy Martin got the festivities off to the best possible start, running in the first of Saints' 13 tries of the afternoon. Further scores came from Paul Newlove, Captain Bobby Goldin and an Alan Hunt hat-trick, amongst others, which helped Saints to a convincing 60, 64 points to 14 win. Saints were champions for the first time since 1975, and for the first time since Widnes in 19, 1990, a different team were top division champions following years of Wigan's years of dominance. In the Premiership, a continuation of the traditional post-season competition and forerunner to the playoff system Super League would go on to adopt in 1998. 
Wigan atoned for their second place league finish by beating Bradford 42-36 at Central Park before consoling themselves by beating St Helens, running in nine tries including a Danny Ellison hat-trick to record a 44-14 win at Old Trafford. Saints had earlier qualified for the Premiership final by beating fourth place London Broncos 25-14 in their semi-final at Knowsley Road. At the bottom end of the table, Workington found themselves dropping out of the top division after winning just two games all season. One away at Oldham and one at home to Paris, accruing just five league points and conceding over 1,000 over the course of their 22-game season. To date, they have been the only Cumbrian club to compete in the Super League and were replaced for the 1997 season by First Division champion Salford. Centre Paul Newlove, who had joined St Helens in the November of 1995, ended the season as Super League's top try scorer, crossing 28 times, while Saints scrum half and captain Bobby Goldin finished as the league's top goal kicker, as his 117 goals saw him on his way to finishing the season also as the top point scorer in Super League, ending the campaign on 257, which included five tries. Unsurprisingly, given the two sides' titanic battle for the league title, players from St Helens and Wigan made up the majority of the inaugural Super League Dream Team. Wigan trio Gary Connolly, Jason Robinson and Inga Twigamala, along with Paul Newlove and Anthony Sullivan of St Helens, made up the three quarters, with Henry Paul of Wigan and St Helens' Bobby Golding in the halves. Apollo Perilini and Kieran Cunningham made up the front row, along with Wigan's Terry O'Connor, the second row saw two different clubs represented, with Peter Gill of the London Broncos partnering Warrington's Paul Sculthorpe, whilst Wigan loose forward and 1996 Man of Steel Andy Farrell took the 13th and final spot in the All-Star team. Unfortunately, Super League's attempt to break into Europe ended before it really had a chance to begin. Paris Saint-Germain would only record two further victories over the course of the season and finished 11th place, and at the end of 1996, Jacques Faro resigned as club president and an uncertain future followed. In their first season, the majority of the French PSG players were also playing for different clubs in the French domestic competition, which caused player burnout to be cited as one of the reasons for the team's lacklustre displays on the field. Under the presidency of Jacques Larosse and management of new coach Peter Mulholland, PSG also missed, almost missed the 1997 season due to budget issues and ended up fielding only a handful of French players with the rest of the squad being made up of Australian and Kiwi imports. Despite an improved showing in 1997, winning 6 out of 22 matches, including an impressive 30-28 home win over Wigan, it transpired that many of the imported players from Down Under were working on tourist visas as opposed to employment visas in order to avoid paying certain taxes. The tax dodge would eventually prove to be the club's demise and Paris Saint-Germain Rugby League ceased operations a week after the end of the 1997 season, with the club's final match being a 48-6 defeat away at Salford in an extended and indeed final ever Premiership trophy. Super League of course wouldn't return to France until 2006 when Perpignan based Catalan's Dragons entered the competition. And from a personal standpoint, especially as I have grown up in the Super League era, the overall standard of play looks worlds apart from all of the pre-Super League footage that I have watched in my research for this podcast. If the operational rules hadn't have come into force, we also may not even have a game to watch these days as so many clubs are in danger of going to the wall. On the field, speaking as a Warriors fan, as nice as it would have been for Wigan to continue dominating the game, the changes that opened the game up more refreshed Rugby League and increased the appeal of the product and offer. And as far as I am concerned, long may it continue.
That just about brings the curtain down on our look back at the birth of summer rugby in Britain. As ever, I hope you have enjoyed it, and if you are of St Helens persuasion, I hope we've stirred some happy memories for you. If you have enjoyed this episode, then please head on over to iTunes and listen to our first two episodes in the archive, and whilst you're there, please hit the subscribe button, and if you're feeling extra generous, please also leave a favourable review. If iTunes isn't your thing, then the show is also available on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and all other good podcast platforms. Another way you can help the podcast is by heading over to Twitter and interacting with me about any topic, not just Rugby League. So if you're part of the Twitter sphere, then I can be found at History of RL Pod. Episode 4 will focus on those seismic moments when worlds collide as we take a look at the history of the World Club Challenge. But until next time, take care. <laughs>